0: I don't have exact numbers on hand in terms of how percentages translate to specific dollar or CPU numbers, but I mean, it's a really big fleet of servers. And so if we can win 1%, that's a great achievement for an engineer for a couple months is to get a 1% win and it translates to really significant savings.
1: You're listening to Numerically Speaking, the Anaconda podcast. On this podcast, we'll dive into a variety of topics around data, quantitative computing, and business and entrepreneurship. We'll speak to creators of cutting-edge open source tools and look at their impact on research in every domain. We're excited to bring you insights about data, science, and the people that make it all happen. Whether you want to learn about AI or grow your data science career, or just better understand the numbers and the computers that shape our world, Numerically Speaking is the podcast for you. Make sure to subscribe. For more resources, please visit anaconda.com. I'm your host, Peter Wayne.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anaconda Notebooks. With nothing to install and nothing to configure, Anaconda Notebooks is a lightweight, ready to code, and fully loaded
1: data science environment entirely in your browser. Spin up new projects with the click of a button with all the packages and files you need in one place. With fast and persistent cloud storage, no matter what, wherever you go, your code goes. And students, listen up. You also get on-demand access to Anaconda's data science experts. No matter your experience level, Learn through hands-on experimentation, and you'll be predicting the future with machine learning models in no time. So what are you waiting for? Start coding with Anaconda entirely in the cloud on anaconda.cloud. Hi, and welcome to Numerically Speaking, the Anaconda podcast. Today, I am super excited to have on with us Carl Meyer, a Pythonista who is at Instagram right now, and who has made a really cool project there and has done all manner of interesting things in Python really super happy to have Carl. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Great. So you want to just to kick us off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of the work that you do day to day at
0: Instagram. Sure. First thing to get out of the way is any of the stuff I'll talk about at Instagram is not really my project. We got a great team working on it. A lot of amazing engineers who have invented a lot of this stuff. So I'm just here to talk about it. For me personally, I guess I've been doing Python stuff one way or another since 2002 or 2003. I think I ran across, at the time, my job was working on a PHP content management system. And I was kind of unhappy with PHP. And so I was procrastinating actual work and poking around on the internet. And I found Python tutorial that I think was popular at the time by a guy named Mark Pilgrim and started running through it. And so it's like this language is pretty neat, a lot more elegant than PHP. And so that was my start in Python. That's great. Yes, and definitely
1: want to acknowledge that the project we'll be talking about, Cinder, is a team, like so many of these great projects. There's a lot of people, but definitely want to acknowledge that for sure. Tell us then, well, let's just get started really quick, jump into it, right? Tell us about Cinder and how that came to be and what the challenges were that you guys were running into there at Instagram that caused you to go and make this other runtime.
0: Yeah, I joined Instagram in 2016. At the time, Instagram was just running stock CPython 2.7. But at the time, I guess, About a year after I joined in 27 or 2018, the curve of Instagram's server capacity needs was just looking really super linear in kind of a scary way. And projecting forward a few years, it was kind of like, we just can't afford to keep going the way we're going in terms of the server CPU usage. So there are a number of efforts kicked off at that point or in place, obviously trying to track down where the Instagram server code base was doing things inefficiently and try to add efficiency there. But we also kicked off a couple of projects to try to optimize things at the level of the Python runtime. So there are actually two projects that were started pretty close to each other within six months or so of each other. One was called Pyro. It's now been released publicly under the name Sky Bison, And it was actually an attempt to do a ground up rewrite or a brand new Python interpreter from the ground up taking advantage of the last 30 years of research on dynamic language VMs and trying to make some different decisions to see if we could make Python run a lot faster. But that project, we knew at the time, was going to be a multi-year bet. It was going to take three or more years to be ready to go into production before we'd see any benefit from it all. So at the same time, we kicked off another project, which we called Cinder, which was an attempt to take upstream CPython and see if we could tweak it where we could just find some wins. The intent at the time that was really that Pyro was the long-term bet and Cinder was supposed to be essentially a stopgap, that we would just do this for a few years, try to bend the curve down a little bit until we were able to get onto Pyro and hopefully see really big wins. So that's where we started in 27, 2018. And after about three or four years in 2021, so we we ran these projects effectively side-by-side for quite a few years. But Cinder was able to deliver some really impressive wins. Some of the biggest things that we did in Cinder, we did eager execution of async IO coroutines, which in a lot of cases can avoid the need, the overhead of creating a coroutine object or a task object when actually the function is able to just complete synchronously. That was a pretty significant win. We did some compiler optimizations here and there, comprehension inlining, some other stuff. We built a JIT for CPython, something called shadow code, also, which is very similar to the interpreter, adaptive interpreter that's now in upstream Python 3.11, where we dynamically at runtime specialize the bytecode based on what we observe, the types, et cetera. So we did a number of things in Cinder and over a few years stacked up some significant performance wins. And as it turned out, this will probably be familiar to people in the data and pydata and scientific python community turns out that c extensions are really important in python and much like pypy pyro was able to achieve pretty impressive speedups on pure python code 4x even 5x 6x wins but we were able to come pretty close or match those wins with cinder and the jit but then the real problem with pyro was because it had a moving garbage collector and a whole different data model at the C level so it needed a, an adapter layer or a compatibility layer to be able to run C python C extension modules and the cost of that ended up sort of wiping out a lot of the wins so in the end we weren't able to find a way around that and pyro wasn't really able to compete with cinder in terms of actually running the production workload with all of its complexities so at that point in early 2021 we ended up winding down the pyro project and focused all of our efforts on cinder
1: Wow. That's quite ambitious to do even one of those projects and then to attempt to do both, I guess. You know, I think something that stuck with me when I heard it in the keynote, I think the engineering manager at Instagram gave a PyCon keynote a few years ago. I forget which year it was or who the person was. But I remember her talking about what a 1% improvement in Python runtime looks like. And You want to quote some of those numbers about just the impact off the top of your head? Do you remember what some of that looks like?
0: I don't have exact numbers on hand in terms of how percentages translate to specific dollar or CPU numbers, but I mean, it's a really big fleet of servers. And so if we can win 1%, that's a great achievement for an engineer for a couple months is to get a 1% win and it translates to really significant savings.
1: It's interesting because obviously on this podcast and of course at Anaconda, we're significantly exposed to our user profile generally looks like someone who's using Python for data analysis, or right? Python for data processing, predictive analytics, or engineering simulation, a lot of very numerically heavy stuff. And there, people do appreciate that performance matters, and they do appreciate that if you're running something on 100 or 1,000 machines to simulate some, doing some numerical thing, you don't want to do Python for loops, you want to go and use NumPy if possible, or you want to maybe reach for Cython or Numba or something like this. But in the case of Instagram and with cinder and then also there is the piston project from the dropbox folks right both of both Instagram as well as Dropbox using python not well they did of course use python for the data stuff too but there python is part of the software infrastructure and that is much more about things like you talked about coroutines threading being able to do a lot of these like low-level runtime optimizations of just the Python interpreter without being able to reach to C code to optimize something or the other. It's actually optimizing that interpreter itself. And I'm curious, this is something that I've had a really fun conversation with Antonio Cooney from the PyPy project about unexpected behavior that people undocumented is certainly not part of the Python language spec, but behavior that people nonetheless rely upon, surprising behavior that people rely upon, which just illustrates how hard it is to do this kind of thing. Do you have any examples off the top of your head? Any kind of favorite like sort of WTF moments as you were trying to optimize something and then code broke for reasons it shouldn't have?
0: Sure. I mean, that's something that happens all the time. Just to go back to what I was saying before, that ends up being another factor in something like Cinder versus Pyro is just Python doesn't have a language conformance spec where you can run against some test suite and say, okay, if we pass this test suite, we're fully conformant and, you know, nobody can rely on any behavior beyond that. So effectively, the behavior of Python is whatever people are relying on in practice from whatever CPython does. So that's definitely a challenge for optimizing Python or working on alternative Python implementations. Something we've run into all the time. I mean, one example that's coming to mind right now is just the behavior of reference counting. So Python developers learn to rely on CPython's reference counting garbage collection, where as soon as you let go of your last reference to some object, it will be freed and, and deallocated. And people write code that depends on this because then they write code that has a destructor, a Dell method that does something and they expect that to run at a certain time relative to other things that are happening. Or they just allocate massive objects and expect them to be allocated or to be deallocated exactly at the right moment. Otherwise, memory usage will balloon. And so that's definitely something we've seen. I mean, we, one of the things we do in our sender JIT is we try to optimize reference counting because that's one of the big costs of running Python code is that pretty much everything you do, you're constantly incrementing and decrementing all these reference counts of all these objects. And that's kind of thrashes your memory and your caches and just generally expensive. So one of the things we do in our JIT is we initially generate our intermediate representation that represents the behavior, the semantics of the code we're compiling without any reference counting at all. And then we know what the behaviors of all of those operations are in terms of references, and so then we can later go in and try to insert an optimized, like only do the minimum reference counting operations that are actually necessary. So we can often eliminate, like, a naive Python interpreter has like an increment and then a decrement of the reference count, and really both of them can be eliminated as a pair, and you never needed them. So we do that kind of optimization in our JIT. And at one point, in order to really minimize the thrash of reference counting, we tried just pushing all of the deallocation of objects to the end of the function. So a whole function would run and then at the end, anything that was no longer needed would then be deallocated. And it was surprising how much code breaks just with that kind of change that you would think wouldn't be that big of a deal. But people really... That's amazing. If Python has a behavior, people probably are depending on it. Right. I think the one that Antonio was telling me, I'm probably going
1: to get this wrong, but he was telling me about one where it was something about Global, was it visibility of symbol names when in, from like leaking somehow from inside a list comprehension or something like this? Does this ring
0: a bell for you or do you? It actually sounds very similar to what we ran into in Cinder. I'm wondering if it's the same one again in our JIT. Well, it might be a little different. The one that I'm thinking of was actually, again, it has to do with the timing of deallocation of objects. But was it, it's like, if you have a generator and within that generator, Oh yeah, it wasn't just deallocation. It's also context managers exiting. So, you know, a context manager in Python, like with whatever you open a file, and then when the context manager exits, it closes the file, that sort of thing. So you have a generator, and then within it, a context manager, and then inside that context manager, the generator yields. And there is some really weird stuff about when in that situation, when does the context manager actually get exited from, because you can have a call to the generator, forgetting the details now, but it has to do with like, if an exception is raised that keeps that frame with the generator alive, does that generator close when you would expect it to? Or does it end up closing much later? We had some very strange test failures in our test suite with our JIT because people were doing like patches in, within a generator. And then if an exception was raised, that patch would end up applying for much longer than it did in CPython because of the way our JIT wasn't clearing things from the frame in exactly the same way. I was a little bit hand wavy, but yes, there's some very, very strange and subtle behavior changes. The reason I bring this
1: up and really appreciate you kind of going into some detail about this is because if you think about the average level of discourse about Python on a site like Hacker News, right, or generally in, you know, on Twitter or wherever else, there's generally a sort of I feel like there's an expectation of like, gosh, it should be easy to make this a little bit faster, right? Why can't we just do this? And you have the same, also, I think the same kind of mentality when it comes to the packaging discussions, in which I think there was just a recent thread when the Python Packaging Authority, they issued a survey to understand where people were at and how people felt about what was needed in the Python packaging ecosystem. And the Hacker News thread is kind of a dumpster fire of people saying, well, I don't say we well, don't we'll just do this because this works for me, right? And it's like, yeah, the things that you wouldn't expect, like for instance, the Dell thing, it's almost understandable, except in the docs for under under Dell, it says you cannot rely on this as a finalization method. But I guess people don't necessarily read the docs, right? As we've sort of learned, if it works, it works. And I think on that, I like to follow that and segue to this concept of like, yes, Python has for a long time had the explicit stated goal, of wanting to be one language, multiple implementations. The de facto is that there's actually really one implementation that defines the language that many people have written stuff in and on. And we don't actually, until you have multiple roughly, I would say, roughly popular implementations that people can fluidly change between, then you don't really have a spec or a standard, right? And the implementation has defined, CPython at the implementation has defined what is Python for a long time. At the same time, when we look at the growth of Python into places like embedded, where people use CircuitPython or MicroPython, and then into data science and science and engineering, where people use IPython notebooks, and it's IPyNB is almost, not quite a fork of the Python language, but if I give you an IPyNB file with a bunch of like percent, percent magics in it, guess what? You are running sort of an extension slash fork of the Python language. It's just not a PY file, but it's a bunch of cells that have a lot of Python in them. So I think the fact that Python has gotten so popular and that it's gone into so many places, is run sort of ahead of what any standards committee for a language could possibly keep up with. And so I'm curious, I guess that was sort of a statement, not a question, but I think that observation is one, maybe I would ask people for some self-reflection before they make any grand statements as to what is Python even, and who is it for, what does it do? I guess my question is for you guys, as you manage rolling out this alternative runtime internally, obviously you're a company, there are people there who have the right sort of the authority to declare, this is the engineering standard, this is what we will use and things like that. And I'm curious, even in spite of having that power to push the rollout of an alternative runtime, what are some of the organizational dynamics, or the human dynamics, as you try to essentially you have to win hearts and minds for people not to just gripe all the time about your broken runtime, right? Are there aspects of that guide your design choices or how you are thinking about roadmap
0: for Cinder and things like that? Oh, for sure. I mean, a big factor is that even though we are a company and control a lot of our code base, the superpower of Python is the library ecosystem and the fact that any problem you want to solve, probably there's a library out there that solves it. And that's true even within Instagram and Meta. We use many, many open source Python libraries. And so we have to keep that in mind too, that whatever changes we make, we really don't have the option of kind of forking the semantics of the language in any significant way, because we're going to end up having to maintain internal patches on all these open source libraries. So it really does constrain things quite a bit. I mean, we work pretty hard to stay compatible whenever we see an area where we might be developing incompatibility, both just to make adoption of Cinder easier within the company, and so as to not cause problems down the road when somebody's trying to pull in a new library and things start breaking in strange ways and it turns out to be Cinder's fault. So yeah, it puts a lot of constraints on. I think going back to what you said before about people making broad statements about what should be possible, Python is very dynamic and offers tons of introspection capabilities and things you can do with like meta classes. And I mean, you can twist the language in some pretty incredible ways. And all of those dynamic features do have a cost and make it harder to optimize the language. But at the same time, a language like Python should be able to be much faster in theory. But with Python, we're dealing with 30 years of history. Like Python is not a new language. I think the same thing is true with packaging. It's like, yes, we can look at something like cargo and say, wouldn't it be nice to have a design like that? But the hard part of the problem is not designing the way the world ought to look. It's dealing with the 30 years of... With the world as it is. Exactly. The legacy that we've built up. In. And it's the downside of Python being so popular and so widely used is that there's a lot of different users and a lot of different use cases already established with the existing tools. And you know what's that XKCD comic where somebody fixes a bug in the software that would cause a CPU spin cycle and heat up the CPU? And then there's a bunch of bug reports after they fix it because somebody was relying on that as a lap warmer or something. I mean, like right, right. anything you change, somebody out there is going to be inconvenienced by it. And that's a big cost that we have to carry with us as we're innovating.
1: It's interesting that the I'm drawn to this concept, I think, from the Buddhists of the cycle of suffering, right? They have this term, samsara, I think, which is something, many things, but the cycle of suffering or the wheel of suffering, I feel like there's this in technology, right? when things get adopted or when things gain rapid adoption, it's because an opportunity space opens up, right? Something is possible and there's all this pregnant potential in the world. And then something that's like lightning flashes, or there's something that conducts all of that potential and turns it into some manifest new thing that everyone starts using. And then the problem is that there's a race at that moment is if you take the time to go build the perfect thing with the perfect architecture. Be left by the side of the road, as everyone just like mob, just swarms to use this new thing over here. And then once everyone swarms in to use the new thing, almost by definition, it's too early. It's not ready. I think there's more things in tech that have this character than don't. Whether it's the x86 instruction set or whether it's like the web or whatever, everything is almost like this, that people swarm, adopt it. And then in the use of it, there's a little bit of crystallization and some things settle out and some de facto standards emerge that people are roughly compatible with. And there's always this like hazy fuzz of like edge cases and undefined behavior, implementation specific behaviors that cause software engineers and programmers so much pain, which makes software engineering so difficult. The more of these components you pull in, the more fuzz there is, the more slack and slot there is in the different pieces that don't quite hook up. And I think it's the kind of thing which when I think about when I was a much younger geek, when it seems like, oh, if only, right? Oh, if only you XML to declare all of these things, we have a perfect schema for how the business architecture of the system. And then you're like, oh my God, <laughs> looking back, it's like, yes, after you've been through a few runs of the thing, you realize, oh yeah, no, the hard part isn't figuring out how it should work. The hard part is making it actually work with the things that are actually there, not just what people told you were there, Right. It's always a forest that you're wandering into of legacy stuff, existing things, data systems that you didn't know you had to connect to. So maybe on that point, I'd love to hear your personal journey through this, right? I remember the Mark Pilgrim tutorial. And I'm curious, you were working on PHP stuff and you moved into Python. But then prior to that, was PHP your first language? And that's kind of how you got started in a lot of the stuff? Or was there stuff you're hacking on before that?
0: My first language was Texas Instruments Basic, TI, Texas Instruments 94A SEPTOP. TV set-top box back in, like, solid-state cartridges, Donkey Kong. With that particular computer, it had no built-in writable storage. So when I started programming in BASIC, if I wanted to save anything that I had written, there were two ways to do it. One was write it down longhand in a notebook, which is what I actually did. And the other was hook up a cassette tape player via RS-232 serial cable to the set-top box and then write your stuff out to a cassette tape, and I never actually like totally got that working. So I just wrote everything down in a notebook. I guess it's good training in keeping your code concise or something, but pretty painful to have to like retype in everything every single time you want to work on it. So that's where I started. At some point, I did some C plus plus and some Java. In college, I hacked on a Daikyu Mud multi user dungeon, one of those online role playing game things. So that was C. Did a lot of Perl. I had a couple of stories from college that always stuck with me in terms of like picking the right tool for the job. A friend of mine across the hall, I walked into his room one day and he was working on an Mbox file format parser. He used Eudora for his email and it stored his email in Mbox files. And he was working on some parser to do some automated, you know, filtering and sorting of his email or whatever. And he was writing it in C and he was just struggling oh. and struggling and struggling oh, <laughs> and like half a day on it. And I walked in and I said, I think I could do this in 10 minutes in Perl." And he was like, no way. And so right. I went across the hall and I wrote the thing he was looking for in nine minutes and 50 seconds in Pearl. Wow. But then the flip side was one of my physics courses, I was doing a simulation of a chaotic bouncer, some kind of physics simulation, a heavily numeric thing. And I wrote it in Perl just because it was easy. And I ran it and my computer wasn't powerful enough. So then I like logged on to one of the school servers because it had heftier CPUs. And so I ran it on there. and It ran for like a day and it still wasn't done. And so I was like, okay, this is a little ridiculous. So I rewrote that in C and it finished in three minutes. Right. Perl and C in college. And then I got the job doing web development and PHP. Then Python in 2002, 2003. Although I don't think I got... Let's see. When did I actually start doing Python for work? That wouldn't be until like 2007 or 2008 when I started a business with my two siblings, a web development consulting business, web application development. And I handled all the backend code pretty much. One of my siblings is a designer and the other one did JavaScript. And at that point, I was like, okay, I checked out this Python thing. Seems pretty cool. We're going to do this company in Python. So that was when I really got into Python and picked. There was actually a debate between Python and Ruby, because, you know, Ruby on Rails at that time was...
1: At that that time, that would have absolutely been a debate, yes.
0: That was the big thing, was Ruby on Rails. So I remember I watched a Snakes versus Rubies event that was recorded and broadcast. It was sort of like a lighthearted debate between David Heinemeiner Hansen, the founder of Ruby on Rails, and Adrian Halavati, the founder of Django. And they, they both were in Chicago, and so they got together at like a Chicago users group or something, I don't remember, and had this thing. And I watched it and I just, I liked Adrian's vibe. I liked the Django philosophy, really heavy on documentation and maintainable, readable code really in line with the Python. So I watched that and that was the thing that made me decide, okay, we're going to do Python and Django for this, not Ruby on Rails. We did that company. Well, actually, the company is still going. It's called Oddbird, oddbird oddbird.net. They do still doing web application development, going great. But I did that from 2008 to 2016, and through the course of that time, ended up contributing a lot of fixes back to Django, and ended up joining the Django core team in 2010. And I think that was how Instagram found my name. Was at a certain point in like 2015, Instagram kind of hit this crossroads where they were like, either we need to rewrite this whole thing in Hack, which is what Facebook is written in, which is like a, a derivative of PHP, or We need to really invest in our Python expertise on staff. And and Instagram is actually also originally written in Django. So Python and Django expertise. And so I think they did some, this was before I came on, but they did some comparisons of performance, tried rewriting like one endpoint and hack and see how much better it was. And ended up deciding that the hack performance at the time wasn't enough better than Python to really justify a rewrite. So then they went out looking for Python and Django people to hire. And that's the story of how I ended up in Instagram.
1: That's amazing. That is really, I appreciate you sharing that. First of all, your your journey, and I'm gonna have, I'm gonna come back to that in just a second, but I really appreciate you sharing that anecdote about how a large business makes the decision about some of these technical decisions, right? It comes down to, I think there's also an availability of talent issue. There's like a bunch of these things because on the data side of things, we definitely saw as Python became more and more ascendant in the early 2010s, there was a lot of Python versus R kind of conversations and comparisons which fortunately now have essentially evolved into Python plus R kind of conversations. And there's a lot of Python in the 2000s as y'all were doing your web dev stuff, the scientific Python side, there was a lot of like Python versus MATLAB kind of things going on, right? And like, how do we stack against this and that and the other? I worked at a consultancy at Enthought where we did a lot of Python projects that were taking some MATLAB scripts, let's say, and making them work at scale or helping ragged bands of quants at like hedge funds and investment banks actually Productionize their piles of Python plus C plus 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 Python and whatnot without having to rebuild it all in Java, right? I'm trying to explain to the IT powers that be of why they shouldn't rewrite a bunch of like Fortran and Python into Java. So it's these, all these language things. What I noticed though, that's going back to your journey, the Ruby Python, I don't want to call it war, but certainly the struggle between those two. That was there was a very I feel like there was a marked period of time when that was definitely like a thing. And I don't know when it ended. I think maybe it ended when it was clear that Django wasn't going to go away. And then once you added Flask in the mix, so super easy to spin up APIs and do little one-off things. I think it was a, at that point, it's sort of like, well, Python's going to be here. And Ruby people can make money too building Ruby things, and it's fine, right, kind of. But there was definitely a time when Python was trying to be like, okay, we have a mess. Like I don't know how many people remember, but prior to Django, And there was like, there was Pyramid and Pylon, I guess I forgot exactly the the chronology there, but there were things like Quixote, there was Zope, there was Web.py, there's web Two. Py. There's there's like, there's a whole lineage of things. Some some of these projects, of course, have still continued, but there wasn't something as like, okay, what is our answer to Ruby? Because I remember that was exactly the question in the Python community. Ruby on Rails is like eating the world, like a blog in 15 minutes versus trying to spin up a Java server and Pojos and Enterprise Java Beans was compelling for everyone. So what's Python's answer, right? And that was the thing at the time. There's a, a good friend of mine, one of my World of Warcraft guildmates who was constantly giving me crap. He would like just every now and then out of the blue, there'd be a chat message and it would be some other blog post or something about how Ruby's better than Python. Or like, oh, you could do this. You can do this, like overloading this thing and this other stuff and Python can't do it. And he was very much a C and pearl guy. And I felt like there was definitely this lineage or progression of people who really loved some of the way Perl made your mind think and the way you thought to how you would wield the language. There was like that carried over into some of the Ruby, Ruby dumb, or what is it, Ruby, like the idiomatic ways to use Ruby sort of seemed more compatible with that. Python seemed, was a very different vibe. I mean, used, I think a very correct term. That's I got a different vibe when I was in the Python community where you show up on the mailing list and you see people who are here, still here today, right? Like the Raymonds of the world and others, but there is Skip Monaro and others, but there was generally a very different vibe on the Python mailing lists. And, I, and that just somehow spoke to me more as a geek. And I don't know how to explain it. I mean, it's just sort of like, it's one of those things, if you're, if you're a coder, you sort of know, and if you're not, it's hard to explain it. The thing about the horses for courses, right? Let's talk about that. The Don't use C to parse inbox files and don't use Perl to do differential equation simulations. So is there something it would never occur to me to use Perl to do that by the way? So kudos on you for even making that work. But what do you think is a the takeaway there? What do you think would be the right way to evaluate what is the right programming system? What is the right level of abstraction? Is it who made it and who it's for? How do we think about that for systems moving forward? Because you know, we're sitting here and you it, to some extent we're on different sides of a very similar challenge, which is the C Python by itself. CPython, Qua, Python, or Python, Qua, C Python is not sufficient, right? And so you say, I represent NumPy, SciPy, Pandas, Land, and we've made our own interpreter for that area, or sorry, our own compiler for that area called Numba, which is a numerical optimizing compiler. Then also, I guess more recently this year, I'm in PyScript world, right? Saying that, okay, we need to make somehow the Python runtime work as a first-class citizen in the browser. You come at it from this web server infrastructure, coroutine kind of side of things and you made Cinder, right? Saying, look, CPython is not quite sufficient for Instagram size and scale needs. So is this where, do you think this is what Python is going to look like? Is it going to have to look like this? Is there any chance for a way for us to build bridges between these different things on the frontier and somehow unify it all under the umbrella of a Python 4000 or something? Is there unification possible or are we kind of doomed to this kind of each island of use cases has its own authorizations it does on C Python.
0: I mean, I'm optimistic that we can unify this stuff. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions about how we go about that. I mean, we have this debate even internally, like the Python people within Meta. It's like, do we double down on the things Python is already good at and try to discourage people from writing performance-sensitive? new performance-sensitive production services in Python, because that's just not what Python is good at? Or do we have a vision for like, no, like we can make Python a good option for this. We can have our cake and eat it to have the like rapid development and readability and conciseness of Python and make it fast enough to really be competitive for performance-sensitive use cases. And I think, I mean, I think the work that the C Python team at Microsoft has done over the last year, that's shown up now in Python 3.11, is really amazing in terms of how much they've been able to improve the performance in a pretty short time. And we're also, at some point, I'll talk about the future of Cinder. We're also working on upstreaming a lot of the stuff that we've done in Cinder to CPython. So it's not just, so Cinder is not a fork of Python, but maybe just an extension module so you can get the JIT and static Python and some things. And then some of our other optimizations like the async stuff can all be upstreamed. So I don't know, I'm curious what you think from your side of the picture, the data science picture, if you think that these things are unifiable, like if CPython can become what it needs to be for your use cases. But from my side on sort of the performance and web services, like I feel optimistic.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that. This would be a whole other podcast conversation on its own, in its own right. But if we think about longer term or in the midterm, right, let's say in the next three to five years, which is all we can really even pretend to predict. And I think the question has to start with the constraints Of what constrains our ability to move fast, and then also the energy, what is seeking to happen in the space. I think there's definitely a drive and a desire for people who like writing Python like things to get bare metal performance. And to get bare metal performance on problem sets that look a lot like SIMD problems most of the time, but then every now and then it's not. Actually, I was just having this conversation with Stan Sievert, who is runs the open source R&D group here at Anaconda. And he's been involved, of course, with the Numba project for a very long time. And Stan made this fun, fun comment that maybe the tagline for Numba should be, sometimes you just want to write a for loop. So I think that's kind of a little bit from the side of the island that I'm on, from part of the ocean that I'm in. It looks like a lot of things we can vectorize and that works great. It's a natural fit for the problems to say, here's the shape of the data that corresponds with the algorithms we've developed. And when you go and look at some of these papers, there's a lot of matrix multiplies. There's a lot of things that you can write as a couple of double summations or something like this. But then in the data engineering part of it, right, when you hit real data, then you end up a lot of times with a branch here or there or a for loop with a little bit of tweaks. And so it's like, it's not perfectly parallelizable. It's not perfectly vectorizable all the time. And Python's at least a language that lets you do that It have this mixed mode. So from this side of the world, it looks like what we really need is maybe a faster subset of Python that's statically compile so we can be doing, and the reasons are there's one step I jumped over here, which is if in order for us to handle those non-trivially vectorizable kind of trivially parallelizable things, if to do that, we have to reach for C and C++, then what we're inviting in the door, that little portal, is we're inviting in all of the 50 years of legacy pain of broken build systems, complex, high, super complex build systems, compiler implementation details and weird bugs and compilers between GCC and Clang versus what implementation of Fortran versus whatever else. Like there's so much that gets brought in when you open that door that then make it impossible for you to leave the CPython underlying CABI. You actually, in that case, where CPython is really, I would say, one of its saving graces. The reason why it's been so successful is because it has the simple ref count thing, which is the bane of your existence, but it's also the saving grace for us people who want to extend it at the low level because it's a very sane thing to plug into, right? Versus trying to coordinate the middle of like some hotspot jitting thing. It's going to be super hard to have any kind of correctness and reproducibility. So I think that the first step is to make it so that Python can go bare metal and fast without having to go to C, but actually can go to a level of abstraction that we can manage our own destiny. And then the packaging ecosystem can quickly become less weird. It can converge into a much simpler, more portable thing. All these things kind of get cleaned up. And then it's like a two put right? So we do that. And then we can talk about then how can we move the language itself forward without being tied to the implementation details of this existing CPython implementation that has a lot of these underlying low-level things that are tied to this. I don't know. This is a lot of hand-wavy. For people who are listening, you can't see my hand-waving furiously on the Zoom. But it's like, in my mind, it's something like that, right? That there's a lot of space that people just want to write Python. They want to do numerical things. They want to do big data things with Python. And it's as a language, expressive enough, semantically basically good enough, especially if you couple with a little bit of SQL. It's fine. It's great. But then then, when you get to the runtimes, it's like to move the runtimes forward, we have to like ladder ourselves up uh, or bootstrap ourselves up on the ladder of abstraction, I feel like.
0: I think so it's sort of a catch-22 there. Python has 30 years of history in which the kind of conventional wisdom or the state of play was that Python code runs slowly, and we just sort of accept that as a fact of life. And then when you want to do something not slowly, then the flip side is Python has this C API, and so you can plug in really easily at the C layer. And so anytime you want to do something not slowly, you just try to push it across that boundary and write a C extension. We have 30 years of legacy kind of built up around that landscape. And I think similar to what you were saying, where we would like to get is where you can write Python code and have it run fast. At, you said bare metal speeds. Ideally, in that world, a lot of things, even within C Python, you know, built-ins in C Python that are currently written in C wouldn't have to be. And a lot of the stuff could just be the standard library stuff, could just be written in Python that isn't today. And even things like NumPy potentially could be written in Python. That'd be a great place to arrive at, the challenge is like, what do we have to do to provide the ability to run Python code that fast without breaking all of the existing C extensions, without breaking the existing C API? And that's where I think, and do we have to change the language, I think is another big question, right? Because I think... Changing the language to reduce some of the dynamism is really attractive shortcut <laughs> from the language implementer perspective. And it's something that we've played with in Cinder. We have something called static Python, where we take static type annotations and we use those in compilation to emit specialized Python bytecode that enforces that the types you've annotated are actually the ones used at runtime, and then takes advantage of that information to generate more optimized code that runs faster. and that does sacrifice some compatibility. Like it's no longer quite the same language as Python. Like there's certain dynamic things you can't do. We enforce that instances of classes can only have a certain set of attributes. You can't tack on random extra attributes. So we sacrifice something, but we also can run Richards like 20 times faster. And we've like entirely replaced Cython. So Cython used to be heavily used in Instagram server as a way to speed up certain hot code paths or numeric code. But it was a kind of a pain operationally because The whole code base is Python, where you don't have to have a compile step or anything. And you have these Cython modules where if they change, there has to be something on the development server that's like making sure those get recompiled. And it's just an operational pain. And so we were able to totally remove Cython and replace it with static Python, which gives you that Python development experience where you just edit the file, the bytecode is recompiled. It just all happens naturally. There's no going to C in a C compiler and all that stuff that you have with Cython. And we were able to do it. actually improved performance. So it's possible to have Python code that runs at native speed. I mean, we're doing that with Static Python, but there's a big cost to like on the downside, we haven't really had a lot of success pushing Static Python beyond replacing Cython in some hot code pads yet. And that's because we've introduced this adoption cost where it's not quite compatible and you have to be careful and you have to adopt it slowly and you have to check for errors and you can't just... Turn it on and assume that it's going to do exactly the same thing, but faster. It's going to behave a little differently. And so the real question, I think, is can we achieve those kind of speeds without breaking the C API and with without changing the language with like full semantic compatibility? I don't think the answer to that is clearly no. Like I think the work that Faster C Python is doing and the work that we're doing in our JIT is like pushing on that frontier of how fast can we make interpreted or JIT compiled Python code run without having to place restrictions on the dynamism of the language. And I think, the, I think it's, it's still a bit of an open question about how far we can push that while not breaking the C API and not changing the language. But I think that's in some ways the most exciting path because the adoption costs are so huge for anything that does change what Python is. No,
1: that's a very, very good point. And I, and I appreciate your articulating it like that right? That essentially the instant you change any behavior, although it is extremely attractive as a language implementer and say, well, gosh, if we just couldn't do that, then I don't have to worry about this entire class of things. The instant you change that, the tax on the user is now users have to figure out, oh, if I'm running on Carl's excellent Python or Peter's excellent Python versus like the official C Python, then I got to remember I can't do that. Or if I do that, the number that comes out will be different, right? God forbid, like that would be the, the worst thing. So I think there's definitely that. At the same time, though, I think there are new areas where Python is being used or people want to use Python, where the use cases are still pretty, well, new is not the right term, but people know they're doing sort of experimental and cutting-edge things. And so they're a little bit open. Things are not quite ossified yet. And they're a little bit open to like, oh, I got to do this quirky thing. I do that other quirky thing. And I think about, of course, the web being one of them, right? Because the execution model is different. We're running on someone else's VM, which is the WebAssembly VM, a client language inside someone else's VM. And so in that context, we might be able to, and of course, the adoption potential and the energy that wants to be unleashed there is massive. So maybe that could actually be a moment when we could change up things a little bit and say, well, here are the semantics of this. We actually don't allow these particular things. By the way, I don't want people to misinterpret this as me threatening to fork the language in script. I can see how it could be interpreted that way, but that's not what I'm saying. It's more just that we might be able to, at that point, use that jump to say, hey, look, as long as you're jumping over here and learning these other things to get this amazing cool capability, if you do these other things, you should do these other things as well. right? If you do these other things, then all of a sudden, the code you write by default now is... Python 4K proof or something, or Python fast, right? In the future, next generation things, it will just go faster. Its performance will get better faster than the not Python 4K thing or whatever, right? Something like that. But no, it's a really, it's a fair point. On the one hand, you, it's the blessing and the curse of having all the users and use cases that Python has today.
0: I think one of the interesting things is that that same dynamic of, I mean, you're talking about sort of pushing people to do things one way instead of another way to be future proof. And I think even with, Work like faster C Python or like JIT that intends to not change Python semantics at all. There's this interesting dynamic that develops as we start to add these performance optimizations, which is that inevitably the way you make Python fast without breaking all of the dynamism is you make certain dynamic things run slowly. It's like your code will run fast as long as you, and this is already true in Python 3.11 in a way that I think it was never really true for any previous Python version to that extent, is that if you sort of follow the railroad tracks and you write like kind of typical looking Python code, things like all of your instances of a class have the same attributes, or you aren't like monkey patching things at runtime and like changing the methods on classes, then your code will run really fast. And as soon as you do something more dynamic or more unusual and violate some of those assumptions, your code will still work and it will still behave the same, but suddenly it might run literally like half as fast. And I think it'll be interesting to see what effect, I think there's a subtle effect that that has on the community as some of these dynamic patterns maybe start to become, like previously somebody might've said, oh, that's hard to read or understand in code review. Today, they might say, you can't do that, that's gonna run too slowly. And so I'm curious to see over time, what kind of pressure that exerts on the way Python is written in practice.
1: And that's a great way to keep people on the happy path, right? You just put, Well, blinking lights along the happy path, you pave it, it's nice, it's smooth, well lit, just stay on the happy path. It's more of a, it's a carrot versus a stick approach on performance. Well, we're out of time. And one last thing, I'm just curious, outside of making Python faster, are there other kind of tech things that you hack on or what's kind of top of mind for you these days?
0: Really, that's most of my time thinking about and working on making Python faster. Every now and then I'll pick up like a tiny little side project, mostly usually writing something in Python. I don't have a lot of time for that. I got two kids. And so when I'm not at work, I'm usually focused on on spending time with them. But my most recent side project, a cousin of mine is developing a card game where each of the cards has this sort of graph of nodes on a hex grid, and that's part of the game. And he was looking for a way to, to generate all these shapes under certain constraints. And so I learned a bunch about hex grid geometry and graphs. And it was surprisingly deep CS problems buried in there. For what seemed initially like a really simple little side project. But yeah, that's one thing I've been playing with recently. Great. Cool.
1: Well, that's, I can certainly appreciate the wanting to have time for family. That's a very good thing to do. Are your kids programming yet or are they too young?
0: No, i got a 15-year-old and an eight-year-old. Oh, okay. Both of them have played with programming. I don't feel like I've really hooked either of them on it yet, but, you know, try not to have like too much of an agenda around that, but both of them have done some.
1: Good. Great. Well, thank you, Carl, so much for the conversation today. It was really, really fun chatting with you. And we had such a good time chatting in Dubai as well about some of these things. So if people want to check out Cinder for themselves, where should they go?
0: It's on GitHub, github.com slash Facebook incubator slash Cinder.
1: C-I-N-D-E-R for those listening in. Great. Well, thanks again so much, Carl. I really appreciate it and have a great day. And thanks, everyone, for listening in to the podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe and check us out on Twitter. It's at Anaconda Inc.
0: This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Peter.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at anaconda.com. This episode is brought to you by Anaconda, the world's most popular data science platform. We are committed to increasing data literacy and to providing data science technology for a better world. Anaconda is the best way to get started with, deploy, and secure Python and data science software on-prem or in the cloud. Visit Anaconda.com for more information.